Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to Alita Battle Angel, the movie that was a passion project for many years of one James Cameron. But when he found himself focusing on all things Avatar, he turned to his trusted friend, Robert Rodriguez, to direct the futuristic sci-fi tale. And in this very special episode, that's who you'll be hearing from, Rodriguez and Cameron's longtime producer, John Landau, both in conversation with Helen O'Hara. Now, this is a spoiler special, and Helen gets pretty deep into the film with both guys, so if you haven't seen Alita Battle Angel, as I always say, hie thee to your nearest cinema, and then come back here when you've seen the film, and press play. Deal? Deal. Okay, the first interview is with producer John Landau. Here it is. Enjoy. So we're joined today by John Landa. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you for uh, uh, allowing me to be. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. Is it, is it a relief almost to have this off your to-do list? You know, it, it's not a relief. It, it's rewarding. It, it's, yeah. it's something we make movies to be shared. Mm. And now we're finally getting to share our little girl that we've spent 20 years raising. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. When I even talk about when we were looking to find a director, once we realized Jim couldn't direct it, I tell people we wanted to find a director that we could parent this child with together. Right. And so now this is our child's coming out party. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of Quintanera or, or uh, yeah, exactly, or, yeah, <laughs> a debut. Um, so, was it sort of difficult to get James to hand it over, or was it a matter of him realizing himself, "Look, I'm not going to have time." You know, in 2005, Jim was really torn whether to do Avatar as a director or to do Alita. He spent about a year trying to figure that out. And um, he ultimately, as history shows, chose Avatar. Which worked out quite well. Which worked out quite well. And then we realized that Jim was going to be in the Avatar directing business for quite some time. And we slowly started to talk to a handful of directors, none of whom were that right partner. Because, again, we didn't want to turn it over. And then out of a social lunch with Robert, three-hour social lunch Jim had. (laughs) Very social. Exactly. At the end of it, Robert said, well, Jim, if you're only going to be Avatar for the foreseeable future what happens to movies like alita and a light bulb went off in jim's head and he said do you have 15 minutes and he took robert and he showed him an art reel that was about a 15 minute art reel that we had done in 2005 and we had actors come in and do voiceovers and all this and robert saw the art reel oh my god he said that's great when then jim reached into his closet and pulled out an 186-page script wow. that Jim had written, which we all knew was too long. And Jim, if he was going to direct it, was going to cut it down. And then he reached in again and pulled out 600 pages of notes <laughs> and said to Robert, if you can crack the script, you can direct it. And Robert, in something that I think is relatively unprecedented, he went off with no deal in place. Wow. And he worked for four months. Wow. And he came back and had reduced the script to 128 pages. Uh-huh. Now, I think Jim's reaction was, everything I like is going to be gone. And Jim read 15 pages. He goes, okay, my favorite thing's coming up. Oh, it's still there. Got to page 25. Oh, my favorite thing's coming up. And it was still there. What Robert did, he said, you don't rewrite Jim Cameron. You can edit him. Mm -hmm. And Robert edited things that were superfluous. But all of the heart that Jim had written in the story, all the character beats, Robert found a way of keeping. And that was the best way to really show Jim and I that, 
he saw the movie the way we did mm. and let's go for it. Yeah. I was going to ask what was the key to him getting the job? I, I think that was the key. Yeah. First, look, the interest. If, if Robert had come back and the script wasn't there, yeah. we wouldn't have done it. Mm. Or if the script had been changed, still a good script, but he had changed But he didn't. Movies, to me, are about the themes. Mm. And Robert kept all of the themes that were important. The father-daughter relationship. The Hugo-Alita love story. And what's the theme there? Hugo falls in love with something he's always looked down on. Something he's he's stolen and jacked parts off of their bodies. But that's what he falls in love with. What a universal message. The theme of a young, innocent girl discovering that she has the ability inside of her to be a hero. Mm -hmm. All of that he had kept. Yeah. I mean, how in the first place did you sort of get to this story from the manga? Because it's such a huge story. But it was it was those themes, was it, that kind of... It was the theme. I think what happened was, you know, Guillermo del Toro introduced us to the material. And when we read it, and we realized we thought at the time Kashiro had only done nine books of the right. manga series. Now he's done another 23 or whatever the number is. <laughs> but I think whenever you do an adaptation or whenever you do a biopic, for that matter you're adapting a life, you have to pick what part of that life you want to tell. <laughs> and Jim, who started out writing him, himself on the project, really made the decision to do the origin story <laughs> of Alita, not to go and see Zalem, not to go out further into the Badlands and meet Des Dusty Nova and these other characters, but to focus it on her, her story because he saw it as a story for what was his eight-year-old daughter at the time. Right. And he wanted her to be identified with that character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The decision not to show us more of Zalem, I thought, was really interesting, though, because in a lot of, you know, similar sort of dystopian, utopian divides in, in filmmaking and sci-fi, fantasy, whatever, you know, you show us both very right. much. Well, I think the idea is that so, so oftentimes a dream is something that we don't ever have a physical manifestation to relate to. It, it, it's, it's in our mind, and we wanted to hint at Zalem and have it be in the mind. But what I love, for me, one of the things I really love about this movie is that if we just did a still frames of Iron City, mm -hmm. it could look very dystopian and uninviting. But when you see Alita go through the world, mm -hmm. she doesn't see it that way. Because she has no other context to put it in. Yeah. She sees it vibrant. She sees people selling things on the street. She sees the mother walking with the daughter holding hands. She sees life. And, and it reminds me of the first time I ever went to Cambodia. And I was out in the streets. And they don't have cell phones. They don't have fancy cars. But there was a joy mm. in the people. And Alita brings that joy to the streets of Iron City. That's what she sees. When she, that's yeah, what she yeah, sees. And therefore, we, we see it that way. And it's a great little note for the audience. And, and Alita then takes us. We see many things through Alita's eyes. We see Iron City. We see Motorball for the first time. We don't take her and throw her into the sport. Mm. The first time she goes and she's watching it. She's, she's a defined. spectator. Yeah. And that allows us to engage with, with that. Tell me about then the casting, because it's obviously really important to get Rosa there as, as Alita and have, have someone yeah. who, can, who can give her that heart. No, you know, people go, John, are you glad it took you 19 years and the technology got to a point where it got to? I said, I'm glad it took 19 years because we found Rosa Salazar. Right. Because she embodies this character. We could have cast anybody 
age wasn't a qualifier because we were doing a computer-generated character. Ethnicity wasn't, you know, a factor. So we were able to cast a very, very wide net with actresses, young actresses, to play this part. And Robert called Jim and I after he did a, an audition with Rosa and said, if we had a cast today, I think I might found her. I've never been in an audition with someone who made me cry before. Wow. And he sh- shared it with us, and we said, yeah, she, she seems great. But we all said, we got to keep looking. So we looked for another three months. <laughs> <laughs> and we found a couple other really what we thought were potential candidates, and we asked all three of them to come in and do an old-fashioned screen test. Mm-hmm. We were on a big sound stage, one actor playing opposite them, and they all did the same five scenes. Right. A lot of work. And then we played those each person's performance up on the big screen, and there was one shining light, and it was Rosa. And we told her, you know, she got the part, and then she just gave us everything. She went into two and a half to three hours of physical training every day, learning martial arts, learning movement, learning rollerblading, learning all these different things. And I remember her agent called me and he said, John, I know you're a couple months away from filming, but Rosa has an opportunity to go do this other movie in Italy. It's summer. Yeah. It's a wedding scene. She'd be in like Vera Wang clothing and all this stuff. <laughs> Would you be okay if she went for six days? You know, and she'd be back still a month and a half before the shoot. I said, absolutely. We'll make that work. Not a problem. Rosa said no. Wow. Rosa said, I'm Alita. I'm staying focused and I'm doing this. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was. And then you, you've surrounded her with basically Oscar winners. You know, we were able to surround her with this incredible cast because of the incredible script we had. You don't attract Christoph Waltz, Jennifer Connelly, Mahershala Ali, Jackie or Haley, Ed Skrine, to these type of roles unless the script is there for them to see something for their acting chops. And it was very important for us to utilize technology on this film in a way that empowered the actor and didn't impede the actor. So the performance capture process we used allowed Rosa to hug Christoph Waltz, to tussle physically with Mahershala Ali, mm. let her, you know, Jennifer Connelly grab her arm and look at it in, in, in amazement. So it was about technology, make, allowing technology to go away and letting these incredible actors just perform their parts. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is for our spoiler special. This right. Okay, so we, this is absolutely signposted spoilers. Nobody will listen to this by accident. Right. But I wanted to ask as well about Edward Norton. At the yeah. End, because... I honestly thought that might be James Cameron for a while. It was that deliberate. <laughs> that was not deliberate. It's really interesting. People have said to me, John, did it, you know, was that Jim? And it's like, no. And, and I never thought of that. And why we never thought of it, if you look at what Kashiro in the manga drew, oh, right. it's that hair, it's that glasses, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> all of, uh, it's all of that. It never really occurred to us, but I certainly see why people see it. And... Uh, you know, going back to Jim and the type of notes that Jim writes and all these things, Ed has a, you know, a surgical part. Yeah. No, no parts are small, only small actors, right? So it's a surgical part. 
But Jim sent him 17 pages of notes about his character to help inform the character. Wow. And do you know who Gelda is? The, uh, the one training her? Oh, is that Michelle Rodriguez? It's Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah. So that's another you know, great yeah. example. And Jim did the same thing, sent her a plethora of notes. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I was going to ask, in terms of Michelle Rodriguez particularly, was there an element of kind of almost... James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez kind of Easter eggs, like, you know, callbacks to their... Because I, I thought when Christoph Waltz picked up the arm in the dump at the beginning, it almost right. looked like a Terminator, Terminator arm. You know, look, I, I think uh, we all see films through our own eyes mm-hmm. and everybody has a different perspective. I think people will take away certain elements of that. Jim and I loved working with Michelle Rodriguez. She's just a bundle of dynamic energy which is contagious, which is so great. And Robert, of course, has worked with her. And she was so excited, you know, to do this. I mean, she, she only came in for a couple days yeah. on it. And it was really nice. And uh, she had to come back and do a little, one little pickup shot that we needed. And she came to, right where we're filming Avatar. Oh, right. And, you know, everybody was so excited to see her. Yo, bro, what's happening? She'd say, and I'm hugging the crew and, and doing all these things. So, you know, what What happens on movies, you, you form bonds. And uh, you could be apart for a period of time, but when you come back together, yeah, the, those bonds, they, they form right back up. Still there. Yeah. Was there much cut from the film? Because I know Jai Courtney was really in just that one right. moment. No, Jai was only ever intended oh, wow. to be in that one that one yeah. moment. You know, Motorball might play out more if we ever, you know, audiences ever tell us they want more, more sequels. That was the only scene that Jai was really scripted in. He's, of course, in the motorball, too, but you don't yeah. really, you know, see his his face. Yeah. Um, Robert did a lot of the editing in the writing process. Mm. As I said, you know, he said, you don't rewrite Jim Cameron, you edit him. Yeah. And when he edited the script, we lost a lot of stuff. There is one scene that took place towards the beginning of the movie where Hugo introduces Alita to motorball and and after that he takes and trains her mm. in a, a, you know like a sewer gully and he does it in an attempt for her to trigger her memory in a way to help her get her memory back when we were cutting the film together we understood that we understood what she needed and we just felt we didn't need that yeah. that scene and that's really the only wholesale scene other scenes we trimmed here, we trimmed sure. there. You, you make it work, but yeah. that's the one scene that we, we did take out. Wow. Okay. And and about Hugo as well, was he always going to die? <laughs> Hugo was always going to die. Um, and, you know, that was a tough role to cast mm. because we wanted an, a young teenage actor or could play teenage who could be both a street kid but also have the vulnerability and the sensitivity that you need. And we looked at a lot, a lot of people before we found Kean. Mm. And a lot of things I didn't know about Kean before we cast him. I didn't know that he had been on Broadway and Billy Elliot. Yeah. And you suddenly see him and, and his body and how he, he really commanded, I think, the, the role you know, so well. And, and women tell me that uh, he's a hunk. <laughs> he, he's, he's a very, very good looking young man, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a bit young, but you're very, yeah. very handsome. One. Yeah. You had to have somebody young for that role because otherwise it would just seem wrong to be hanging out with a leader. That's right. And it's that part age. of his story, yeah. too, because the adult role is the Christoph Waltz role because yeah. that's another love story in the movie. Christoph has a second chance at fatherhood. You know, he, he starts out and uh, wants to 
coddle this girl that he's now taken in as an orphan, mm-hmm. but limit her the way maybe he had done to his daughter who tragically passed away. And it's Alita's impact on him that allows you know, him to grow mm-hmm. as, as a character. And one of my favorite uh, moments is when Alita's trying out for the motorball. Mm-hmm. It's not something he wants her to do as a parent. He's worried. Put on this helmet. Take this. Take that. And then he reaches into his bag and pulls out a brand new pair of motorball skates. Yeah. And she goes, did you make those for me? And he doesn't say anything. And it's like that's an ex- a father accepting a daughter for who she is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lovely moment, actually. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's very nice. It's like, I don't want you to do this, but if you're going to do it, I'm going to make sure you're you're safe doing yes. it kind of thing. In terms of the, the, the motorball, was it important to have that thread as well as the, the sort of the hunter killer, you know, thread, which seems more obviously plot related, but I think they both kind of well, tie in. You know, I think while the hunter warrior might be more plot related, I think both are very character related. I think what Jim does is he writes action sequence that advance the character. Mm-hmm. You know, Alita goes into the first street motorball game and she's taken out. She's knocked down. And she finds it within her when, when Hugo goes to try and help her to come up, being the gentleman that he, he can be, she pushes his arm away. Yeah, That's a character moment. When she goes into the motorball tryouts and finds out that everybody is after her. It's about what do you do with that? And, and then Hugo interrupts her right in the middle of all this. So it, it, it's about servicing character. But what, what Motorball gave us was the ability to put that cinematic spectacle up on the screen in a, I believe, a brand new, fresh way like people haven't seen it before. Yeah, I think that's fair. What about the there's this, the fight scene in the, the bar, the, the Kansas? Bar, yeah. There's the bit where she smears the blood on her face. Mm-hmm. Was there any studio pushback at that? Because was, that was quite hardcore, I thought, for, <laughs> for this film. Well, you, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at the underlying material again, mm. we have pulled back from what Kashiro has put on the page in, in often cases in terms of that type of uh, cyberpunk, you know, action. Yeah. And by doing it there with a non-human character, albeit a dog, you never see it. Mm. You only see the after effect of it. And again, it's a character moment. When she takes that blood and wipes it on her, and she stands up and she says, I do not stand by in the presence of evil. Mm. That's like should be a mantra for everybody, women, men, whomever it is. You don't have to stand by. You can make a difference. You can speak up. And that moment represents that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask as well about the title, because I think you were the person who was sort of pushing for it to go from Battle Angel Alita to Alita Battle Angel. Can you tell me a bit about the, the sort of the difference? Uh, the, the difference for me is that, to me, this is a movie about a character. Mm-hmm. She is Alita. She is a person. You know, this movie begs the question, what does it mean to be human? Are you human if you have a, a, a physical human body? Or, or can you be human if you have a, a mechanical heart? But really what makes us human is our mind, is our soul, is our consciousness. And by leading with the name, it gives it a, a greater sense of humanity for me. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it saves sort of having explanations of what battle angel means and <laughs> that sort of thing that can it, it, it does it, 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 and that's why you know in shorthand we can talk about the movie it's alita mm-hmm. 
The movie's Alita. It's Alita Battle Angel. If if we ever want to tell another story in whatever format, books, publishing this, we can go with Alita Revenging Angel. We can go with Alita, all those other titles, but you're just always leading with the constant yeah. instead of the constant being the following. Yeah. And you have such a, a much, much bigger world here to explore because we hear about a lot of things that we don't really see. We, we tease. Mm. You know, we, we tease at different things. We tease at her backstory. We, we tease at Zalem. We 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 tease that is there something above Zalem? All all these things, but Kashiro has laid these all out in his body of work, and oftentimes you think about, you know, could if audiences want it, could we do a sequel to X, Y, or Z? Well, if we come up with a story, we could. If we come up with a place, we could. On Alita, you don't have to think that because it's all been laid out there for us. Alita's character, Kashiro, develops over time. It never stops evolving and changing and learning from experiences. And Kashiro's story doesn't stay just on the streets of Iron City. He expands his world in the graphic novels in ways that, you know, cinema could as well. I was going to ask in terms of, you know, the beginning, like, how does she get on the dump? Do we, is that ever sort of answered in the comics? Because I have to say, say, this is one manga I haven't read. Right. You know, I, I think it's all part of her backstory and, and the role that she played on Zalem. Mm-hmm. Because really, what goes in the scrapyard is the garbage from the city above. And Iron City exists to supply Zalem with all of its goods. Mm-hmm. And everything that goes up, they just dump their garbage down below. And that's what makes this universal, that, that Alita thinks of herself as that insignificant girl. And someone in our lives, we've all thought of ourselves as insignificant. And my, my mother has discarded me, my father has discarded me, my boyfriend has discarded me, my girlfriend, whatever, whatever it is. But she finds the inner strength to rise out of that garbage heap mm-hmm. and make a difference. Yeah, and find her... You know, her family, her love, her true body even. And her purpose. Mm. Ultimately, you know, when she raises her sword, Mm. that's a challenge. I'm not going to stand here and take it. I'm I'm coming for you. Yeah, that was a significant moment to end on. Because it is, you've got the, I guess the the problem with a sort of a wider story like this is is then where do you end it? How how do you strike that balance between leaving us wanting more and and coming to an end? I look at it as life, right? Mm. We have chapters in our lives. Each one comes to a closure. But there's that moment where you say, okay, I've now graduated. And I'm moving on. And I'm going to face the next challenge. Mm-hmm. And we're telling the story that's bringing the leader to that moment of graduation. All right. Awesome. Well, that seems like a moment to graduate for us Great. as well. Thank Terrific. you so much. Cheers. It's a pleasure meeting you. Okay, that was John Landau. And next up is Robert Rodriguez. Also, enjoy. Okay, so uh, welcome, Robert Rodriguez, to the Hello. podcast. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. This is obviously a film that has been in the works for a very long time. Yes, um, 20 years 20 almost. 20 years, yeah. it's crazy. So, you know, you first heard about it, I think, at lunch with James Cameron. So was it, were you sort of talking to him kind of as a fan of his work going, no, but seriously, when are you going to make this? Yeah, I was asking him that, but uh, as, a, as a fan completely. I mean, I've been friends with him since before Desperado even, so it's been a long time. But um, And I would always check in on him, go visit his sets. We both had very similar backgrounds, starting very scrappy, you know, no budget type movies. Mm-hmm. But he went out into the stratosphere with stuff that he's making. So I was always, you know, like the kid brother going looking around, saying, "What are you doing? How are you doing it?" And 
And uh, but that was just a question about as as a fan. He was showing me all his artwork from the next avatars, showing me what he was going to be up to for the next foreseeable long future. And I got a little disheartened, going, "Well, what does that mean for Battle Angel? When when (laughs) am I going to see that movie? I mean, I saw that announced in two thousand or two thousand and one. That it said it was his next movie. So he said, uh, "I guess I'll never get a chance to make it. But do you want to see what I?" what I've done on it. I didn't know he had done work on it. I thought it was just, he got the property. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, it was a chance to get at least a peek at it. So I'd have some visual in my head. That would be, you know, second place to yeah. getting a movie from him. And he had tons of stuff. He had a whole art reel where it's kind of narrated art reel where you see all the paintings that he did for the movie, but done cut together. He showed me one of like that for Avatar before he did Avatar. It has narration talking about what the movie is, kind of talks you through about 10 to 15 minutes. And it was stunning. And I remember seeing her with the manga eyes and the large, you know, the large eyes and the scrolled arm. And I, and I thought, oh, she was going to do a CG, full CG person back in 2005. Wow. No one had even done that today. So, uh, yeah, he, he gave me the script and said, you know, I never, fi- I never figured it out. It, it was too long and I never quite cracked it. But, hey, take it home. See if you like it. And, shit, if you can figure it out, you can make it. And it was just, just kind of j- half joking. And I said, well... Let me go check it out. I'll read it. And I read it. I loved it. I just thought it was just, it was shocked me, actually, because when I had first seen the announcement that he was going to make it, it was a picture of him. It was a picture of Alita. And I said, oh, okay, but he doesn't usually adapt other people's things. He writes his own script. So what, I wonder what he sees in it. Mm-hmm. But then I said, oh, okay, well, she's a sci-fi character. That's his sci-fi world. She's a cyborg. It's a strong female character. Okay, I can, I can kind of see what he's doing. But, you know, anime, mangas, you know, sci-fi films, particular tend to be somewhat cold and that didn't seem like you know he's he always finds a warmth in it i wonder what it was in there and when i read the script i saw it it's like oh this is a very universal story it doesn't have to it it can play all over the world like his other movies do and it's mostly about the characters first and then you know like what makes a movie great is it's a mix of truth and spectacle Mm. you know spectacle is why you go to the movies but the human truth is what the audience takes home with them and that had that in, in just spades and so I, I said, oh, man, I would love to work on this. I, I'll try cutting it down. And that's how we got it going. He loved my edit of it. I edited it down without cutting out his favorite stuff, which I, I was like very careful not to cut any of the character and uh, story ports mm-hmm. and just cut extra action, combine some characters, mm-hmm. kind of surgically went in there and took out the stuff that I thought he really wouldn't miss that other people might think he would i think other people might say oh he's about spectacle you gotta leave that in no no he's he's more about the heart and the story just for me knowing him for so long yeah so that helped that i just knew him pretty really well yeah. and was he kind of around a lot like if you wanted advice or something or was he was he very know, helpful very he wasn't able to be there a lot because he that got that off his he had a lot of stuff to do for the avatar movies so uh, he knew he could let leave me to it and really wanted me to make it my own but me making it my own was really, I didn't, I didn't want to take this great script I had now and go off and make a Robert Rodriguez movie. There's yeah. lots of those. I wanted to make the missing list James Cameron movie. Yeah. That's what there's a, there's a, you know, a rarity of. And, um, so I was constantly asking him how he would approach it. And he said, well, for me, you know, best advice, he didn't, he wasn't even giving me advice. He was just telling me his philosophy. Um, cause my stuff's very whimsical cause I used to be a cartoonist, but he was an illustrator. So he uh-huh. doesn't, you know, so, um, he said, for me, you know, science fiction and fantasy in particular have to be really grounded, utterly real. Otherwise, the audience doesn't buy the fantasy. You believe the alien queen because Sigourney's so real because of all the props, everything, the world feels so real. Mm. And I thought, wow, I have to change how I 
make my movies. I can't shoot it on a green screen like Sin City and make it look like a manga come to life. It's yeah. got to feel like a really tangible world. So I'll shoot real sets, real locations, real actors around her. She'll really be biting an orange. And then the effects company has to match her in, which right. is a lot of extra work for them. But it'll feel real. And then really grounded with people like Kristoff and Jennifer Connelly and yeah. Marshalla, you know, really classical actors. And, and, just, and just take it up towards the level of what Jim normally does. Mm-hmm. Why it feels so different from my movies is because his script was so clear that he could see it, that I could see it too with his eyes. And, uh, and I wanted to see that movie really yeah. badly. So I was like, I'm going to help make that thing come to screen. <laughs> so he doesn't feel like he has to be there. Mm. But he could check in as often as he wants. I could email him a question. He'd send back a masterful answer. There was like a film school. I mean, it was so great. That's awesome. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about there. But let's start with the casting because, I mean, you've got, you know, relatively unknown Rosa in the lead. Like she's done some, some great stuff in, you know, the Scorch Trials and Maze Runner films. And uh, I think she was in Divergent as well. So she's got a bit of a background with these big films. But this is still, this is a whole other level. Oh, yeah. This is all on her. And it's a technical technical challenge. But she's so great that mm. it would all disappear. The technology would disappear with her. You'd have a helmet on and this whole suit and a backpack and it would just be her coming through. It almost like neutralized her in a way so where she didn't have to worry about costume or or anything, just be from the inside out playing the character, which is the best. Yeah. And then how about like, like you said, Mahershala and Jennifer and Christoph Lerando, I mean, three Oscar winners. Um, that's kind of an embarrassment of riches. I know, I know. And it's such a, it's so amazing to work with people like that. You know, whenever I've had like uh, actors of that caliber, I mean, you really can tell the difference. I mean, they're so well trained and professional. Mm-hmm. They help you so much because they just, they just know the job and they can come in and effortlessly become someone else. They're always super collaborative. They love to be directed because they know that they are, you know, they've achieved such a status that sometimes someone might not want to direct them so much because they're a little intimidated. And and you just, they they invite it there and they try to really break the ice and say, no, no, come tell me me. (laughs) what you think. I want to, I don't want to just do myself. I want to, I want to be pushed to try other things. And I always have helpful suggestions on how to, combine this or, or make this scene work a little bit better so always really welcome to have people like that and you've got some of your sort of uh, old collaborators in there as well jeff fahey and, and oh yeah Rodriguez, I guess, yeah, as well, so, yeah. well jim had worked with her too on avatar of course yeah so we both knew her but that was like the first thing we said we should get michelle rodriguez to play this role we both love her and she is she would be the sensei to alita she's so badass it's so funny yeah so she was great jeff yeah there was a small role for like a cowboy cyborg and I thought, wow, that look, the artwork even kind of looked like Jeff Fahey. I said, you get Jeff in there. Uh, Jeff, Jeff would show up with bells on. He always is helpful, no matter what it is, no matter how small a role or big a role, he's always right there. Yeah. And and cyborg dogs is something I haven't seen. So and I thought, you're going to have cool. some cool cyborg dogs around you that'll look totally real, like they're really there. Yeah. And they're fantastic. And there's so many great details in the movie. Mm-hmm. The weather guys just, you know are on a whole you know the talk about oscar winner you talk about oscar winner actors it's an oscar winning deservedly so effects company it's just like with the actors they set the bar so much higher than you could ever set for them so if they sent me a effect shot i would say wow that looks great maybe we should work on this corner of the mouth oh we got 40 other things we need to do with this we need to do this 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 i mean they they set their own bar they're trying to achieve something far beyond what you could ever ask for 
So that's like incredible. I'm not used to that at all. I'm always like battling with effects companies. Like, no, you're not finished yet. We got to still fix. Okay, well, at least fix that. You know, no, these guys do that on their own. They're still upgrading shots. Even when you're signed off a long time ago, they're like, oh, no, we're not done. I was going to ask about just the the scale of the effects because you've obviously got a huge amount of effects experience, but is it different when you've got, you know, just such detail on someone's face and so much, so many characters with cyber uh, cyber parts? Does, mm-hmm. does that sort of shift the kind of the focus of the effects for you? I mean, there's a lot of detail for sure. They said they, when it said there was more detail in just one of her eyes than there is in all of Gollum, yeah. more polygons and detail. And also the type of effects we're doing. A lot of, like my, like I said, my other movies, my stuff tends to be somewhat whimsical. So you can get away with certain things. Not with this. I mean, Jim is very much one where that arm doesn't look like it, it wouldn't really move like that. It wouldn't attach there at the clavicle like that. We need to redesign that because I don't buy it. It pulls me out of the movie. I don't believe it. You know, so their effects had to also look like it could work. So it wasn't just the great detail to just the, the facade i mean it actually from an engineering level you're talking about jim is an engineer so it has to pass that test as well so yeah with so much stuff to create um you needed a team that was going to be just on it and how about creating iron city as well so you you built that basically in the back lot yeah i got like ninety thousand square feet of iron city in my back in my in my parking lot back in Austin, it's the largest standing set in all of the United States because wow. most sets get knocked down after a movie. Um, we built it to last like fifteen years, and uh, you can walk right out of my office into Iron City. And Jim was even a little jealous. He goes, "I'm kind of jealous that you can walk out of your office right into your set like this." <laughs> I never, I never had an office that walked right into the main set, but it, it was needed to be very tangible. It needed to feel very real, so we had to build it so that. When the actors are there, they feel like they're in this a real environment. Mm-hmm. It help makes it more relatable. What was the most difficult scene then for you to shoot or to nail? What was the most difficult scene? Hmm. Gosh, they're all were a challenge, you know, because it's always like made up of so many different parts. It's it's hardly ever just you know two people sitting in a room. Sometimes it is, but even then, every shot is an effect shot because she's an effect. So you have to keep that in mind. How are we lighting it so that later on we're matching it into the lighting and she's well lit. She has to be lit like a star. So we have to think about that. And it was all but good challenges. I mean, there wasn't anything that was a problem or, you know, like super difficult. You had a great team to bounce ideas off of. And it helped that I had done all those jobs. So yeah. when I'm working with a DP or a composer or the editor, yeah. they know I've done my own movies like that. So we can talk at that level. Yeah. Like, what do you got back there? 10K? Let's put an 18K back there. Maybe bounce something over here off of five. And they'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you speak the language. Yeah, you speak <laughs> the language. And you know, what you know what their challenges are, too. You know what the challenge of the job is. I'm not going to ask for a shot that's impossible because I know you can't just go like this. You have to start whether the whole thing's going to be flat, you know, so it it really helped not to, you know, to to have done all those jobs. I wanted to talk a bit about some of the sort of story elements as well. So you've got this vast source material in the manga. How do you sort of nail down which bits you you need to have you know she starts off in the dump and we don't know why we don't know how she got there right and there's no coming back to that and sort of explaining that at any point in the film yeah so, you know you could put it maybe in a flashback or something and jim and i talked about that so are we going to say why she was dumped 
Mm, or we save that for another movie. <laughs> so there was some back and forth discussion on things that hadn't been figured out. But 95% of it had been figured out. He had already figured all of that out in his draft. That's what was such a great relief was that he had done that much work. That's what got me excited to do it. I don't think I would have probably been as excited to do it if he just handed me 30 volumes of <laughs> manga and said, hey, so yeah, let's make this together and go figure out <laughs> go a story. <laughs> it was easier on Sin City because those were short stories. Mm. And they were kind of self-contained short stories. So I just, and I'm like, I didn't know there would ever be a sequel. So I was like, I stuck all four of my favorite stories into one. I crammed them into one movie. You couldn't do that with this. I, I know I probably would have taken the approach of, okay, some of book one, some of book two, some of book three and four and five and six. You know, but Jim was much more disciplined. He's like, no, we have to create a character arc for this one movie. So if there is another one, it makes sense where to go from there. Mm-hmm. But if there isn't, it still just needs to be a complete story arc of a character. So I'm only using books one and two and a little bit of four or three. So I was like, wow, that's really disciplined. So he'd already figured a lot of that out. There were some things still needed to be figured out that he and I would just discuss. And literally within a a seated conversation, I'd put the tape recorder on, we would go at it and we'd have it by the end of that conversation. That's awesome. Um, It's very sharp. (laughs) I think on on the same sort of note, and it's maybe the same issue as, you know, the, the decision to kind of, keep both the the hunter killer aspect of her story and and that sort of quest to do that but also the sort of flirtation with motorball as well and the, and the sort yeah. of the interest in that so you know i think some films would have chosen one or other right um you know was it important to you to kind of keep both there? yeah i kept both in in fact he had done a draft after that with another writer where he'd taken out the whole hunter warrior uh aspect of ito and um, I read his first draft where he was the Hunter Warrior. And I was, and I said, you know, yeah, it saves time. But then he becomes just Geppetto, who's just worried about her all the time. And, you know, he becomes a third wheel. So that's not that great of a character. And me having children, I know as a father that, that at a certain point, your kids kind of have no use for you. Pretty early on, they don't really need you there just nagging them. The best relationship you can have is where you actually become a mentor Mm -hmm. and they actually want to be with you because they want to learn from you. And that's what I loved about the first draft is that he was already turning into Geppetto, but then she discovers that he's, because he's nagging her about, you can't do this, you can't do Mm -hmm. that. But then she's like, oh, he's a hunter warrior. Cool. This guy's cool. I want to be like you. And that's the best relationship you can have with with a child is when you now, their mentor and your teacher and not just their nag you know (laughs) and so i put that back in and people love that relationship when they watch the movie they say oh we love the relationship between them it's because it transforms from father daughter Mm -hmm. to mentor to then letting her go eventually so um that was important to keep and then the motorball just brings lots of spectacles we had to have that (laughs) and he found a really cool way to use motorball they're they're not even playing the game they're just trying to kill her so that's that's really exciting and it's interesting that that as well you've you've obviously worked hard to try and make it look different from you know rollerball or mm-hmm. or any of the kind of sci-fi games we've we've seen before yeah and but also it was like that in the manga i mean who knows maybe kashir haven't asked him was was a fan of the movie rollerball or something but so how he drew it and the, he would draw these little speed lines to show just how fast they're going so i would show that to weta and go okay see this drawing from the book so look how fast it's, it feels is being conveyed just with the straight lines going across her head we has to be really fast, like 100 miles an hour, but we probably have to cheat it and do more like two or 300 miles an hour to really feel the speed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really exciting. 
tell me about the decision not to show Salem because I think that's really interesting because again in a lot of kind of sci-fi films where there's been a sort of utopia dystopia divide you spend a lot of time in both and mm-hmm. this one really we don't yeah you're seeing it from their point of, it's all about how you see the world mm-hmm. right so that scene is is a big you know in the eyes all that's very important kind of thematics to the movie so this world that they live in, and you can say the world we live in, they all just think it sucks, you know? Everyone wants to get out of there. Q is trying to get out. Sharon's trying to get out. Nobody wants to be there. But then this girl arrives from, the, from dumped from above, with no memory of who she was. So she sees it. The lens she sees everything through is with real beauty and awe, and then the audience sees it through her eyes, too. So the audience, I don't think, even knows that... The, what a, what a cesspool this place is at first because they're seeing it through her eyes, yeah. which is wondrous and amazing. And, and she changes everybody that she meets mm-hmm. with that viewpoint. And that's kind of a really cool th- theme. It's like, yeah, we can look at this world like it's just a terrible place or we can just realize that our how we see it and how we look at it, no, but it can be so wondrous. Like it's how it should be instead of how it is. That That can actually change the world, that kind of thinking. And that's what she becomes a catalyst for change throughout. And, and it's going to keep going that way. So we wanted her to see the world. We wanted the audience to see the world through her eyes and through the and through the eyes of everyone down there, which wouldn't give you a privileged look up there. You would be always looking at it from underneath, wondering what is up there. And so, yeah, it's kind of a drum roll into the, the greatest drum roll into the next movie is that you don't even go up there in this movie. <laughs> you see her targeting it. Yeah. But she's not up there yet, so you yeah. know where it would go in another story. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think that's a cop out for me. It's like um, that creates what I call story value. You know, a lot of my movies do that. And in, in, in Mariachi, he doesn't become the guy with a guitar case full of guns mm-hmm. until the last scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. In Spy Kids, they don't actually become spies till the last scene in the movie. In this, she only finally figures out who she is and remembers. Mm-hmm and has a target of what she's going to do in the last scene of the movie. And so even if there isn't a sequel, the audience can imagine more movies because they have a, a character who had a complete arc, yeah. and you can imagine more adventures with that character. And if there is, then it's very easy to continue. Sure, yeah. Now, next time, we're going to go up there, and then we'll see it. And we'll be glad we didn't spoil it. And that's the other thing that's just the technical challenge of a movie like this. Even if we decided to go up and see it for one or two shots, it'd be wrong because mm-hmm. we'd probably have to change it completely in the next movie because we'd spend more time up there. Then we would do the R&D and the money and the expense that it would take to design a whole other city. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it to do it for one shot. Right. But also, story-wise, it, it, it's not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth it. But we do have one, obviously, connection with that, and that's that's Nova. Now, I, I believe I'm not the first to say this, but he, I thought it was James Cameron for a minute. <laughs> you um, thought it was Jim. I, I really did. I thought, wow, oh, he funny. looks a lot. He's got the white hair. He's got the white hair. That's the white hair from the manga. Yeah, but then if you look a little closer, then you see, oh, no, that's Ed Norton. Yeah. yeah. It took me Ed Norton and him, if you look them side by side, they both have like a long nose. But mm. other than that, they don't really look alike. But at first, because of the Jim Cameron movie, and we don't say Ed's in the movie. Yeah. He's not in the credits. That, yeah, you could think um, that, that. But I also liked Ed, and we both knew Ed mm-hmm. very well. Personally, we had never, neither one of us had worked with him before, but that was one of the reasons we picked him. One of the reasons I picked him because he does remind me of, of Jim in some ways, not not feature wise, but he's just really a smart guy, and he's so smart that that's the kind of person that would be Nova. Mm-hmm. Nova, um, as you'll see in the manga, you know, even even though he's he's not really the villain, he's the antagonist to her, but you'll see that you know he 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 has many sides to him. 
Yeah, he pulls a lot of strings. Pulls a lot of strings, but is also very smart and smarter than anyone around here. And that is Jim in a way. <laughs> He's smarter than anybody in the room, always. <laughs> but um, yeah, he conveys that sort of intelligence and mastermind and like, oh, that's a real threat because he's... He's really smart. Yeah. So you want to get someone like that, even if it's just for one sort of one. Yeah. It was like, we got to, we have to show him. So we know who the antagonists find somebody that if we did make more, he would be great in that, in that movie. And, and, um, and that, uh, would, would even agree to be in something just for a few seconds. So that was, that was Ed since we both knew him. We knew he he would trust us enough to come be a part of it. He was great. He was fantastic. I wanted to ask as well, just to go back to what you were saying about Alida changing everyone that she comes in contact with. I mean, maybe one of the people she changes most is, is Hugo. So was he always going to die? Was that always a, a, an important part of kind of her development and, and, and of the story? In the way Jim Jim's version of it, it was really important for sure. It was it happened that way in the manga too, but he was a different kind of a character. He kind of, a, he kind of always had his eye on the sky and he was going to go up there no matter what. He didn't really care about her as much in the manga version. But yeah, it looks right out of the manga. It's pretty crazy. That's the scene that blew me away the most, seeing the visual effects for that sequence. It's like, when did we film that? I mean, we were never filming that. It was just uh, just shooting him on a on a on a cap on a green screen actually just for to get his head um because he has a cyborg body by that point. And when I saw the finished Weta shots, it looked like we were there on a location and it's I could see why Jim likes to make these kind of movies. You create images that that you can only see in your dreams and when you see them it takes your breath away as if you were the audience. I feel more like an audience member on this than a director more in this movie than any other movie because it was stuff that as the effects come in, I was, it would take my breath away. Like I was an audience seeing it for the first time. But yeah, that was, that was uh, an important story point is that she had to experience. I mean, she remembers who she was by the end of the movie and it, she was a bullet fired from a gun. That's all she was, was a warrior. She had no attachment to people. She didn't even know what that was. So her growing up like this was a chance at a second life, mm-hmm. having a father, meeting a boy, falling in love, understanding. She can't go back to being a warrior after that. So when she goes forward in life, she's got this life experience. She Before she was supposed to take down Zalem, which would have killed everyone down there. Mm-hmm. She didn't hesitate. Yeah. So now she would hesitate because she knows what that means because she's lived there. So she had to kind of have love and lose it mm-hmm. in order for her to go onto the many, many, many chapters of her life. This was just one chapter, you know. Yeah. So it's all part of that continuous evolution. Yeah. If you do another one, do you have a sort of a a, a, a road work, sort of a path? Well, Jim, ma- on any movies anyway, even if he's not going to make a sequel, doesn't just write the one. He maps out several ver- several other movies, like at least three in a trilogy of some sort, just so he would know what not to include, right. what needs to be included, what you would save it for. Um, but it's pretty loose, you know, we could, we could go figure it out. It wouldn't take too long to figure it out, but it's not like it's already written at all. It was really just like, well, we got to get people's asses and seats for this first in droves in order for there to be another one. So hopefully, you know, the audience goes and supports it. We get to do, we get to go see what's up there. Finally, that would be fantastic. We'd love to do that. And he's got enough notes. In the 600 pages of notes he gave me that we could craft something together pretty quick. Yeah, you must have a fair amount there to work with. I have a lot to work with. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, thank you very thank much. You. Best of luck with it. And that was Robert Rodriguez talking to Helen. And that is it for our Alita Battle Angel spoilers special. Our next spoiler special will be for a little film I like to call Captain Marvel with directors Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden. How exciting. That will be up sometime in early March. 
If you don't already subscribe to the regular Emperor podcast, which is out every Friday, please do so. And another special episode for you to look out for right now is our very first podcast documentary, or if you will, podumentary, with James Cameron himself talking about Alita Battle Angel, but mainly Avatar. It is the story of Avatar and how one man had an idea in his teens that blossomed years later to become the biggest film of all time. We're very, very proud of that, so do check it out. Right, that's enough blathering from me. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>